2: you know what I love about this you could never tell they were rich it's all so classy and understated I'll make it up to you later make it up to me now let's find a room they must have a few you're so bad This is what
3: rich entitled people do when threatened they conceal the ugly truths to protect themselves
2: the community is in shock tonight over the gruesome discovery of a fourth grade
0: mother found bludgeoned to death hello and welcome back to still watching the undoing i'm vanity fair senior writer joanna robinson
1: and i'm vanity fair chief critic richard lawson
0: If you were just joining us on this podcast, what we like to do every week, Richard and I, is pick a show that we're watching closely, obsessively, and break down the latest episode. We are currently on episode four of The Undoing, uh, which is called, I believe, See No Evil. Um, so that is what we will be discussing today. We will not be discussing any further episodes because, uh, Richard hasn't seen them. I've only seen one more after this. So we're getting close to my, uh, my, me being equally, uh, as in the dark as you are, as, Richard.
1: As Undone.
0: Oh, as equally as They say as the undone. title
1: of the show in this episode, sort of.
0: <laughs> I will be wandering the streets of New York in various velvet coats, Just looking um, undone. You can always email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I sort of implored folks to email us last week and we were richly rewarded for that. So um, I want to say that I'm going to I'm going to see if I can get away with this playing this through my microphone. And if I can't, um, I'm just going to send Dave this clip so that he can insert it for us. But um, I'm. Our listener, Catherine, made actually like a video um, about something that happened in last week's episode that she thought was really funny. So this is about episode three. I'm going to play this for you. Um, I don't know if it's going to come through as a uh, (laughs) it's an audio element. Here we go.
3: I never underestimate the
0: state's ability to fuck things up. I can
3: win almost any case, Grace. What I cannot do is wave a wand and make everything better.
0: That of course is the voice of the great Noma Demeswini, who plays uh Haley the lawyer. She also, as we discussed last week, played Hermione, uh in the Harry Potter uh, play, The Cursed Child, which is in London and also on Broadway. And uh, she said, I can't wave a magic wand. And the video that Catherine sent to us, unfortunately, you guys listening can't see it, but it, like, cuts to a photo of her as Hermione and then cuts to, like, video footage of Catherine herself with her hand over her mouth. So, anyway, um, I, I love a I love an undoing meme, so thank you so much for that. Um, then we got this email from Carlos, which is... Um, kind of extensive, so bear with me. Um... The undoing, uh, I'm quite enjoying the undoing and your coverage of it. So I figured I'd drop you a line with a few thoughts, both on the show and your discussions. Here are a few points that really caught my attention in the show, but I don't think you guys mentioned. Unreliable narrators. In the third podcast episode, you mentioned how Grace might be an unreliable narrator. I think that'll totally turn out to be the case. The question is whether she's just unaware of it, some psychological denial, or just, um, uh, or just really good at lying, as in maybe because Kidman's so good at acting for us, Grace is selling it just as well to Detective Mendoza, if that makes any sense. For now, I'm leaning on the former, but we'll have to see. However, I did think it was very suspicious that in Episode 2, when first talking to the detectives, Grace was super vague regarding her connection with Elena. It would have been normal for her to mention that Elena seemed upset when she left, but she makes it sound like they barely met each other. So why is she hiding that? If I remember correctly, that exchange happens before it becomes obvious that Jonathan's a suspect makes me wonder uh then carlos uh the next heading for carlos is dodgy family i also think that anyone in the family might have played a role in this agreed that henry could be hiding something when he was so reassuring to grace in episode two when she was worrying about not being able to reach jonathan that could just be him being a nice son or trying to buy his dad some time same goes for grace's dad franklin i don't think you guys discussed that quick scene in episode three where we see him lurking outside the alvis's apartment what was that about I also feel like when he was being so upset about not telling Grace about the loan to Jonathan, that might have been crocodile tears. It seems like it'd be too obvious for Jonathan to have done that. But if he'd only intended to confront Elena the night of the murder, why had he made up that conference in advance to give himself a cover for the whole next day? Uh, The next title is Prison Chic. Also in episode three, I know Grace is rich and privileged and under a lot of stress, but who on earth would wear an extravagant crimson velvet coat to a prison? prison visit, uh, And then the last thing is the others vibes. Uh, Carlos says, lastly, I enjoyed how you guys discussed how the show is giving you throwback vibes to Kidman's earlier work. I think you n- name check dead calm or far and away. I got huge. The others vibes. I love that movie. In episode two, when Grace wakes up at night to some clattering noise in the lake house, plus her character in the others was also named graced. Maybe, maybe this grace is ghost uh would love to hear your thoughts on any of this keep up the good work so uh sorry big spoiler for the others at the end of that email uh if you haven't seen that great film uh richard do you have any th- uh thoughts on coats or <laughs> donald sutherland or anything else that was mentioned in this up ep- in this email
1: well of course all my thoughts on coats you can listen to on our other podcasts still still coding um so i won't i won't I will, i'll spare i'll save them for that podcast um but uh i <laughs> I think this is a timely email because this episode I think really goes in um, much more in-depth to the un- p- potential unreliability of Grace's quote-unquote narration. I mean, she's not narrating the show, but she is their, our protagonist. And we assume because we are trained by various <laughs> semiotic things or just like literary tradition to to trust her. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think there was obviously the anxiety attack that it was, was immediately – uh preceded by like so, what looked like some kind of hallucination or something um and also yeah, I think that the caginess that she has with the detectives um at first just seemed like she you know that that kind of like well, I'm not going to give them something they can rope to hang me with. But now it's like, why are you being so evasive? Like, um, there are so many easy explanations for things. Well, my husband said she was obsessed with me. That's why she called me. I don't know her, you know, but she's, 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 instead she's cursing, you know, at the police and she's, I mean, which, you know, maybe we should all be doing. But like, but in this context, like it's like, you could do so much more to seem innocent and she's not. And obviously her, her conversation with the lawyer who clearly does not trust her, um we also see franklin uh really kind of bare his teeth in a way that we haven't seen and see how much we see more c- clearly how he functions in this family and as a sort of dominant uh you know mucky muck of of uh new york life um so yeah i think there is definitely more that meets the eye to this whole family um but i still don't know who to pin it on exactly
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, uh, we'll get more into it, but I feel like if, if this episode is trying to do anything, it's really trying to push, push the could Franklin have done it narrative, uh, into the forefront, um, would be my assessment. Um, Mike emailed us, uh, uh, some feedback on episode three, our, our interview with Edgar Ramirez, um, where he said he enjoyed the interview and, and in that interview, um, Richard, if you didn't get a chance to hear me talk to your boyfriend, um, Edgar talked about uh, both like the research he did, um, you know, talking to real homicide detectives and the fact that the actor who plays his partner is a former um, cop. So like the idea of like, you know, what they looked into. But but um, Mike disagrees with one aspect, he says one point of disagreement in real life homicide detectives would be treating Grace with the utmost courtesy. So, um, Mike feels like, you know, these cops mm-hmm. are not being as <laughs> kid glovey to kid in as they would have been uh, in real life. Um, all right. And then uh, this email comes from Catherine who says, Throwing out some theories, maybe one ends up sticking. First, joining whatever chorus may already exist and thinking that Donald Sutherland is behind it. I don't think he did it himself, but orchestrated it. It would track to me that Jonathan would have confessed the affair slash love child to Franklin in the conversation about getting the money. And Franklin waved an I'll take care of it one and hired someone to do the kill and is now framing Jonathan for it to protect Grace. The other thought was that he's in cahoots with Grace, but I'll be mad if that bears out because then it's a clumsy thing where they've had conversations in private uh, that we haven't been shown, so it really wouldn't work that they both know and are hiding it. But if Grace really wasn't involved in the actual doing of it, she's still hiding something, given that she was there that night. My theory on that is that on what she isn't saying is that she was actually the first person to find Elena's body and didn't go to the police And I'd imagine her reason for not telling the police is connected to how slash why she ended up at the studio, because obviously she can't be that can't be a coincidence, even if she knew Elena lived in Harlem. But honestly, the reveal I'm most wishing for is that Lily Rave is married to like Cherry Jones. (laughs) Sylvia is the show for me. Thanks for reading. Um, And then Catherine says, sorry, uh, one more. Sylvia casually mentioning in episode two that Jonathan came to her for legal advice, plus loaded glances in the courtroom equals they slept together or it's like dr foster where way more people knew about elena than grace realized so um and if you guys have seen dr foster i definitely have uh it's a great british soapy time um richard any thoughts on that
1: well yeah i mean i think i'm glad that they brought up sylvia because she has an interesting scene in this episode where she and franklin interact and there seems to be an affection passing between them maybe it's just because sylvia is such good friends with grace but it had me thinking, coupled with this anxiety attack or whatever it actually was, um, that maybe this entire family and friend unit has, is all protecting Grace from herself, from the police. Maybe they all know that she went into some sort of fugue state and did something and are all working in concert to protect her um whether that means henry's involved in it or what but like i think there is some there's definitely some there are some holes in that theory and some messiness to it but um the show i don't think i don't think it was just an accident or 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 a a, a toss-off that we got to see not only franklin as he um, deals with problems of you know at the school or or with um jonathan but that that scene with sylvia it feels like that was there for a reason
0: yeah, I asked Lily Rabe about that when I talked to her. I don't think it made it into the final interview that went on air because of the timing of it. But I thought that exchange was so interesting. Her, like, have fun to him. And it just, uh, you know, she she's just sort of like, they're similar people, Franklin and Sylvia, that they, like... Once again, they they like disrupting the circles of power. This is something that Lily Ray talked about a lot about Sylvia and like how she and Grace are kind of in this world, but outside this world. And Sylvia, like, you know, Sylvia, a childhood friend of Grace's, has known Franklin her whole life and gets a kick out of uh, watching him Swing his power around, and and maybe she enjoys doing the same thing. So,
1: which you know, yeah. and I think that that might speak to if it really is just kind of illustrative of like Sylvia's place in this uh, ecosystem. Um, that might speak to like a, a less about the who done it, and more to like the themes of this show. Um, you know, I think which are so clearly uh, stated by Haley, the lawyer, um, when. You know, she's saying that because that's what rich people do. They, they, you know, they withhold because they think they can get away with it. And you know, uh, Sylvia saying "have fun" or whatever. Like this whole thing of, well, we think we're good people, yeah, but we enjoy the power that we wield, and maybe just don't think about the ramifications of that, and that other people don't have this. But or maybe knowing that other people don't have it is part of the fun, you know. And yeah. and it's just saying, how moral can you really be? If you are so comfortable in such a casual way, offhanded way of pulling the strings and levers of power and and, um, uh, clearly, uh, at least Haley is uh, keen to that sort of immorality, um, but does, again, does not mind working within it and working for it.
0: That is a perfect uh, segue. We actually have two interviews for the podcast this week. Uh, we've got Noma de Mazweni, which we will go to uh, right now. And then later in the episode, we've got Ismail Cruz Cordova, whose character Fernando had a sort of big scene uh, this episode. So since we have two, we'll drop one now and get to the other later. So let's hear from Noma on her character, Haley. I wanted to say before we got into this show how much I just adored your work on Normal People. I just (gasps) wept through that whole episode, and I just thought you were incredible. So I just oh, I really appreciate
3: that, John, and I I, I will absolutely give kudos to the amazing Hattie uh, Hattie McDonald, the director, because she was just sublime, and therefore working with a great, the young and great Paul Mescal. We just, it was just lovely. It was a lovely, it's very easy to listen to people when they're doing great work. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot of listening that you do in this show as well, uh, in a different uh, profession. (laughs) I I want to start by asking you something that that I've I've kind of decided to ask everyone, which is, what is your interpretation of the title of this series?
3: The Undoing.
0: The Undoing. What's Undone? My, well... I think my
3: interpretation of that title is we do what we do, but that can become a habit. And then for it to be undone, undoes you. And therefore you have to look at the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. The undoing of people's shapes, forms, environments, structures, emotionally and physically, um, culturally, And that's really what we're all going through at the moment as well, the undoing. And there's the phrase I like is that actually, I think we're all unfolding. I mean, that's a different answer to your question, but in terms of the undoing, we have to re look at where we all are. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Grace and Jonathan have to do.
0: So um, I'm curious when you, when you first encountered your character on the page, did you have an interpretation of her that was different from um, any discussions you after you had discussions with Susanna about the material about the work?
3: Yeah, I, absolutely. I think when I first encountered Haley, you remember everything starts with oneself. Everything, every story starts with oneself. And then now you shift it and change it becomes something. And I like to work in collaboration with people. And I always say that um, uh, Susanna kind of course corrected me to kind of go, no, this is the Haley I would like to see. Because I think the Haley I kind of came in with them like this, and I've just done theatre, so she's obviously going to be big, blah, 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 blah. But actually, what I loved was what Susanna was pushing. And I can say this now from a, from a distance, because I did find it intense at the time, but from a distance, I love the holding and stillness and quietness of Haley, And she's a watcher and she's a listener. Um, but there was an interesting thing that Susanna made me do just speak quieter, speak quieter. I was like, what? <laughs> I can't speak quietly. I'm just coming. Whoa! <laughs> kind of feeling. Right. So there is a power. There is a power in kind of just letting people come towards you and not have to push yourself because you're very comfortable right. in your space. And that's what I loved about Haley: her confidence. I really did like that. Yeah. So that's, that was learning that alongside Suzanne again, yeah, let's push that more that way. So just to get her stiller.
0: Um it's interesting to me, you know, the function that your character serves um at, at one point at least in the series is to throw into doubt our um our theories, our personal theories on on who might have done it, right? Uh, that's yeah. that's the whole job is to gum up the works. Um the absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um and uh, you know that to a certain extent is sort of like what the show is trying to do at any given moment is sort of like throw us in one direction or the other so did you think of your i don't know if it's if you're you know since you're thinking of your character as a human do you think of your character also as a sort of larger representation of this genre this like twisty mystery genre I think what you're going to do
3: for me in that sense, do I think of my character in this genre? I think of her as a human being, and then I listen and read what David E. Kelly has written. Or if there's slight rewrites, why have they changed to that, to that? And then you're working with Nicole and Hugh and kind of listen to the thoughts that that may be behind a moment and that could change. And then when they do a thing, another thing flips because emotionally they've given something else. But ultimately, I would say, I I think the answer is I held on to Haley as a human being who is watching and listening. She knows her job inside out really well. And she says she puts the burden of proof on the law. And that's why she creates muck very early on. So therefore, you've got to work it out. The law has to work it out. And that is part of the thriller narrative. That is part of the, I'm that good at my job that I can go, (laughs) what do you think? And I like, I like that. So they kind of, I understand your question. They kind of collide, but I have to think of Haley as a human being.
0: Of course. As a performer. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, What does it uh, feel like as a performer to approach uh, a legal drama written by David Kelly, who is sort of our foremost legal (laughs) drama guy, you know? (laughs) Well, first and
3: foremost, you can trust it. Mm-hmm. first and foremost you can trust that, and you also understand that this is a drama this is a storytelling narrative it's not the real thing um, and even speaking to people who were the real thing and the real thing in the court, you go well this is TV this is TV because ultimately we're storytellers and we want to engage in a, a point of view and the, the narrative is not about the courtroom ultimately for me it's about these people it's about Grace it's about Jonathan it's about the world that they're in and the undoing of that world and here I am uh, a character who comes in and serves that narrative in one way and then you've got somebody like Ishmael's character Mr Alves who serves it in another way and that's ultimately the writing is great we come back always Shakespeare David E. Kelly great narrators of storytelling Afro Ben Tony Morrison whoever is telling the story Mm -hmm. and me as an audience goes I want to know more. Then the job's done. And that's what I want to be part
0: of. I was uh, speaking to Hugh Grant this morning and he was sort of expressing uh, that he was appalled by some of the realities that he learned about the American legal system in terms of the relationship to the media or, you know, just the larger circus aspect of it. Um, yeah. Did you have a similar experience working on this? I think when
3: you realize that that was, I mean, I think there's quite, early on we, we did a scene. Um, talking to the media and the reason for why she did it is about changing a narrative. I was like, rah! I mean, when you do go deeply into it, you go, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. That's a way of using information. But I have to also say as well, though, um, right now, Joanna, we're witnessing something quite extraordinary in how the media and the world is being shown in itself. And I kind of go, Do you want nothing now? I'm sure a lot of things will surprise me, but when we, the unfolding of us human beings in this moment in time is that a lot of light has been shown into dark um, underbellies and shadows and crevices and nooks. And you go, wow, okay. So that thing about the law, the law is an ass. The law can be an ass, but if you know how to use the law well, it will absolutely work in your favor. Yeah. If you have means to do it, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you have a Haley on your side, right? Yeah. Um, if
3: you have a
0: Haley on your side. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some small uh, rewrites. Can you share anything, um, however small, that might have? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no, no. no. I'm
3: not trying to pry secrets. So
0: yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> no,
3: no, but I do, I do. No. Do you know what I was saying? I think there was one. One. There was one moment that a scene, um, got took. Way it was a really small scene, and we realized actually in the narrative the overarching narrative, we didn 't quite need it and It was a courtroom uh, the anteroom uh, scene between uh, it was part of, between um, Grace and Jonathan and haley and it was actually what was lovely was watching Nicole and Hugh for me as an actor, watching them trying to figure out the overall arc of where their story was going in terms of this particular scene for me. Uh, for Haley, it actually didn't matter in terms of the arc of the story. So it was about the bigger picture for them. So it was, watching, it was wonderful watching the two of them with Susanna try and go, yes, 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 no, no, no. Do we actually don't want, we can let it go. And I love that. I love that in that moment when we're ready, you can actually, we don't need it. We don't need, because they've got the bigger picture going on. And therefore I remember, do I need, no, actually, that's fine. You always have to come back to your character and say, "What do I need out of this?" But it was yeah. lovely watching that thought process.
0: Um, I'm curious. I know that uh, Susanna has a reputation for doing a lot of coverage and also a lot of sort of unusual coverage because there's so many interesting, almost off on guard sort of close ups and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what was your experience with that um, as a performer? Well,
3: I. It was just trusting, just do the scenes. She's going to do the coverage wherever she needs mm. to do it. And also, what I, for me, is, it was a very um, intense, steep learning curve, is what I was going to say. And it was that shift from um, theatre through to TV. Yes, I've done bits of theatre and uh, bits of TV and film along the way in the last few years. And uh, the biggest one before that was um, Black Earth Rising in, in terms of a narrative character that goes through. So a lot of the stuff we've done has been like normal people appearing here for the moment there. So with Haley um, and working with Susanna and how it was, all I just went, which is why I always have to do who are the actors I'm working with. The director knows what they want to film, however many setups they want to do, and we can organize that. But as long as the truth of the connection with the characters is going on. There were some technical moments you're trying to figure out and you kind of go, okay, I can't I actually can't see Someone's eyes because there's a camera right in front of my face, but I've got to imagine right. them there. But once imagination is good enough to do that, if you understand the story um, telling. So for me, that technicality, watching that technicality occur around me, the, 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 the wires, the ropes of wires, the lights, the bins, the things like that I'm going, this is so different. And I'm just used to an audience being right there. And I love that. I lo- this is a new thing. So my curiosity. I just love that. I, it's, it's a new learning curve.
0: Do you feel like that calibration that Susanna was looking for with your character for more stillness, all of that, um, is that related to you being a theatrical actor and used yeah. to playing? Absolutely. To the rafters. And she's like, <laughs> yeah. she's like, guess what? My camera's well, right like... here. You don't need yeah, to do exactly.
3: that. exactly. i actually, the microphone... Can pick up so much more, and right? I, so I'm still doing this. So I had this image, and I remember apologising to Danny when I finally figured it all out. Danny was our sound um, designer. Um, uh, uh, I remember going, "I'm so sorry for shouting in your ears those early days <laughs> when I was doing it. I'm really sorry." And he kind of laughed and was like, "It's okay," because that was my learning curve. And I remember mm. it was actually another friend who said to me who was in the business. It said it was a lovely note that I got outside of it when I was trying to figure out what was I not doing right because I was still stuck in a theatre energy space Mm -hmm. and my lovely friend Alexa um, uh, who is a casting director went just speak to the distance of the person you're speaking to I'm like huh Speak to the distance of the person you're speaking to. It's became one of the most major notes that I could have ever had. So therefore, if someone's speaking like this, I can go really quiet. But the mic is going to pick it up. And I'm like, oh, that's genius. <laughs> so I remember coming in the next day, kind of going, I got it. I got I know it. I got it. it. <laughs> yeah, I know it. I know it now. But it's those technical things that shift what you do. Um, and therefore, with Susanna wanting me to get stiller and quieter in a sense, the technical stuff is doing all the work. I don't need to hit the back of the room right. So that was my steep learning curve amongst many. yeah
0: something I think that's very interesting uh, in in your section particularly of of the season is this sort of background uh, percolation in in the news footage of this question of privilege and specifically white privilege around the client. Um, And I think it's interesting that you and Edgar and Ishmael are these non-white actors sort of circling this very insulated, white, rich world. And I was wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, what thoughts you had on on what the show is trying to do with that uh, contrast?
3: I think. Right. So what we've got to acknowledge is I finished filming in June of last year. I think they had a few more weeks. They finished in July. Uh, the whole thing finished in July. Um, what we're doing at that time is going, let's have, I, I don't know what the casting process was and the choices of the casting process. What I do know is that I got the part of Hayley Fitzgerald. Now just that name, Haley Fitzgerald. There's so many different types of actors you could have playing that name. I happen to be the one who got the part and this is how I look. Post George Floyd and everything for me is before and after excuse me, at the beginning of May, we we're, were due to show um, the undoing at that point um, before uh, the George Floyd moment happened. But because of COVID and the pandemic, blah, 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 we're now doing it here and here we all are because it's finally arriving and I'm very excited by that. But our awareness, Joanna, your awareness has shifted. The question would have been absolutely different in January. And I know that my answer would have been totally and utterly different in January because I don't believe we can unsee what we have seen. So therefore, now you are aware, and I mean this with love and respect, that oh, mm-hmm. look at that actor and look at that actor and look at that actor. Whereas I've not necessarily been clocking them before this moment, but they just happened to be actors of color there. But there is, it, we're now in a space of layering that I'm really excited about because you as the individual, you as a human are going, Oh yeah, that's, that's interesting because that's about class. That's about money. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, cause also for me with Hailey, I know that that route is she is of the world, but she's not. So she, she knows the world, but she's not of it that she works in. That's in a, that's a very expensive law firm. Mm-hmm. That's a very expensive law firm. And even going, how did she get there? And I go back to that character, her confidence, her sense of self her sense of play, her sense of control, the scene that she has with um, uh, Jonathan to try and figure out what and where and how he is and where she can put him in her scheme. Because she is brilliant at what she does. She has a confidence that I don't have and I I find that fascinating. But you can't help but look at it through the filter of me playing her. Do you know what I mean? It's the same, it's almost like, I think the thing with with what happened, uh, Hermione getting that part and how that changed a narrative, mm -hmm. but now the narrative is different again Mm -hmm. because we're all so much more aware because the world has done an extraordinary thing. The world universe Mm -hmm. has done an extraordinary thing to all as humans, if we're willing to learn the lesson. I get very romantic about that, Joanna.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I I really appreciate that answer (laughs) a lot. My my last question for you is, um, did you receive the entire script um the whole thing when you all in one go okay so you know no, no no I didn't no? no no
3: no 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 I had a sense so it was coming I think like the first few and then let's put it by the time I, was like I knew what their overreaching arc okay. was going to be but even I was like w- where is it coming what's next oh yeah these ones are coming through these ones are coming through they had the arc there but then stuff did change as we were doing it and you go I love that I love that because it's not lenient, so it keeps us. uh, Oh, okay, brilliant. Because we kind of get. And then my question is what happens in the cutting room and the edit room? What does Susanna see? And how does that change her storytelling as well? Mm -hmm. Because it's never done until it's done. And I'm fascinated by this medium. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting to me because um, I, I heard that the extras in the courtroom were asked sort of every day who they thought had done it and they had a different answer every day. <laughs> so wondering of your theories had changed or anything. So, Do you yeah. know that
3: was interesting? And from my point of view, no. But it was wonderful and glorious watching that. And that was Richard, our first AD, who would kind of, kind of get the audience, the, the court warmed up. And it was fascinating how it changed. It was fascinating. And when you have someone like Donald Sutherland in the room as well, he's mm-hmm. being joyous and clowny and then very serious when we're doing the actual scenes that I think, I think the courtroom appreciated the involvement. Absolutely. You, which you should be able to, we're all making the show together. Everyone in that room, we're all making that show together. That I was have, joyous. Yeah.
0: I have to admit, I'm always suspicious of Donald Sutherland whenever he shows up anywhere. So I <laughs> got my eye on him. For sure. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for the chat. I really appreciate it.
3: I really appreciate that, Joanna. Thank you so much. Take it, my lovely. Brilliant.
0: Bye. Okay. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham.
1: And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
0: So I I really agree with you. I think this show uh, is is enjoying un like unrolling to us the various ways in which these characters wield power. Like John, like ending the episode last week with Jonathan, like you know, getting into a prison yard scrap, right? Um, and then in this episode, Haley does a really good job of just sort of analyzing what his charm is. You know, she's just really you know, sussing him up, reading him and and understanding how she can weaponize the charm the same, same way that he has weaponized it his entire life uh, in order to help them win the case in the media, uh, which I think is a really interesting aspect of modern justice, uh, the way in which the media can be a tool to, you know, help even the guiltiest of parties.
1: Yeah. And I think that the scene with Jonathan and Haley... Uh, when she's like, "What the hell were you thinking?" Going to um, the house—that's right. um, powerful too. But also just the actual scene and and thinking about it in the context of uh, of of the lawyer scene, where it's like, he, you know, him him sort of doing the, the, the doctorly tenderness to the kid, and 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 just really insisting himself into these people's lives in a place yes. he's not wanted, and just thinking he can do it because well he knows better he's smarter he's sharper um I mean really what that's what though that pair of scenes made me hope for for the end of this show is I really hope it ends on Miguel you know in in some fashion because that kid is so w- w- caught up in this but has no power no agency really um and is someone who I think it's to, you know we have not heard from I mean he hasn't he's barely spoken yeah and and is barely considered. Obviously, there's a lot of attention on this baby because of the paternity, but you know, and, and obviously the the confrontation at school. But the confrontation at school then becomes more about uh, Grace's family and not about Miguel. And um, you know, so I hope that the show uh, finds a way more than it already has, which I think it subtly has, um, to recognize that kid who is so lost in this and so routinely affected by it in traumatizing ways.
0: I I I really like that assessment, but I and I do think that that uh, that examination of Jonathan in this episode, where uh, you know he jams his foot in Fernando's door and insists that he can just come in and just ignores everything that Fernando says, and just like the audacity of his behavior in that house, touching Miguel at all, like any of that. Um, and then he does he he does a similar thing though in, in Grace's hospital room right like he just like walks in mm-hmm. he's he's sort of been excised from the family but he's just like no no this is my place you know plays the doctor that's sort of like his a trick of his right is like let me do a doctor examination I'm a trusted figure I know things like let me into your inner circle uh kind of thing and I think that that is really interesting to show it, show it to us twice in this episode
1: yeah and and you know there have been I've. I remember reading something about like concerns over sociopaths in the medical industry. And, and it said last week about the God complex and all that. And I think that like, we tend to think of doctors as carers, as healers, and, and they are that certainly, obviously, but in certain, and as, as in any profession or most professions, um, especially high intensity ones, like people who are addicted to that intensity, addicted to that adoration, like can definitely, you know, sneak in, um, I also think you know Jonathan saying to Haley uh, I didn't see the harm in it and it's like you didn't right. see the harm in going right. to, you know I was thinking about that you know the the interview that Prince Andrew gave about the whole Jeffrey Epstein situation which was such a disaster right. and they're just like what the hell are you thinking like the, you, how how can you think this is possibly going well for you but he exists in a world free of of of
0: consequence conf-
1: you know consequence yeah. and also um interrogation like people never he never say, hey, like, or confrontation, people never say what this is, you are doing something wrong. Uh, I don't mean morally wrong. I mean, like, you were making an error. Um, and yeah. uh, and so I think just, well, I didn't see the harm in it. And it's like, well, then you are, cl- you are a lost cause, because there's a lot of harm, you know, harm there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that um, examining Jonathan's performance in that interview, uh, oh, the Connie Chung interview uh was really oh, yeah. <laughs> interesting because, it, you know, he's he's doing this whole thing. And I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know how we're how we're meant to feel. I don't know how anyone listening here feels about his guilt or innocence. But just uh, no matter what, even if I think he's innocent. I think that was a performance. And I think it was so staged when he's like, oh, may I? And then, you know, Haley tells him to go on and then he cries. I mean, come on. That's how I feel about that. Uh, and And it was, I thought it was really... Chilling and, and and Grace's reaction seemed less to be about like, this is a performance and more like he said he loved this woman and that is really upsetting to me. But if I were at home, I'd be like, oh, bravo, Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan, Oscar worthy, tears on Connie Chung. It reminded me of um William Hurt in Broadcast News, you know, where yeah. it's like cut to this performative crying. I don't know. Uh, that, that's my read on it.
1: Or, or Nick's performative interview in uh, Gone Girl. Um, which is really to send a message to one person. So this is a different dynamic in this show, but like that, that sort of, um, the falseness of, of, of media and how you can manipulate it and exploit it. And, you know, Haley says it's a chance for people to hear your side without cross, you know? Um, so there is not going to be any, uh, there, you know, there won't be too many hard questions, even though Connie Chung was sort of known for that, uh, in parts of her career. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that it's become really clear that. That this whole family, this whole rarefied world they live in is a lot of show, a lot of manipulation, a lot of keeping up appearances, you know, to destructive, you know, with destructive means. um, And that maybe the ultimate undoing is kind of the exposing of that. And meanwhile, you Mm -hmm. have Miguel and you have his father, Fernando, who is dealing with something. I mean, many things that are really difficult, including like how to figure out how to love this kid. And that is, you yeah. know, not biologically his, um, and you know, might be, you know, the son of the person who killed his mother. You know, it's like it's so complicated, and yet we're spending all this time on Connie Chung interviews and you know, uh, f- fancy private school uh, spats and and um, and I, th- I think that is deliberate on the show's part.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think what's interesting. Um... Susanna Beer said this really interesting thing about how she thought that Hugh Grant had this like sadness uh or or dark I don't want to misquote her because uh, I think uh she and I like it took a little time for me to really understand what she was saying uh thematically, but like um that she feels like Hugh Grant as an actor as a performer has sort of like weaponized this core maybe it's like a hang dog sort of thing, and that it has worked through like through his sort of foppish mumbling rom-com intro to our lives – through some of like you know his his more recent performances which have maybe been uh you know and then he went through like the cad phase after he was in Bridget Jones and then like now it's sort of like Hugh Grant could do whatever because i remember in the 90s there was a sense that Hugh Grant could only do like my hair is falling over my forehead i'm stammering i'm so charming sort of thing and then he did Bridget Jones that kind of like blew that image up a bit and then I think in later years, we discussed some of his more recent performances on this podcast already that like, you know, I kind of feel like Hugh Grant, there's just so much he can do. Um, And so she was talking about this sort of like weaponized sadness, though, that runs through all of it. And I thought that that was, I had never really considered that uh, for him. And uh, because we talked about weaponized charm for him, this idea of weaponized sadness and that, you know, and that's something that he is doing in this, like as Jonathan, I feel like if you watch Hugh Grant's like f- forehead eyebrow acting, like, oh, Jonathan has just forever like got this like wounded puppy dog eyebrow thing going on. He's just always like, why, why would you attack me? I'm innocent. I'm the victim. I'm like, uh, it's me, you know, like mm-hmm. all, or, or like even, even when, I'm admitting to having cheated on my wife, it's just sort of this, like, um, I know I'm awful. I'm a dirtbag. I know, but I'm not a murderer, like all this sort of stuff. Like, I just think it's, it's fast, a fascinating performance.
1: And watching people who know that tactic, uh, sort of throw it back in his face. I mean, you know, the scene where, where Franklin goes to see him in prison and, 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 and Jonathan turns on the whole, like, I'm going to make this right. That kind of noble, you know, yeah. like proper gentleman, gentleman kind of thing. And, and Franklin's like, I don't need, I don't know. I don't want that, you know, cause he knows it. He's, he's attuned to this. And then he, you know, later is like, I, I, I saw myself in him. Yeah. And that's why we had this conflict. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I think the show is, has really developed some really interesting psychological portraits i wish i wish that we got more of elena i mean i think we're getting it as she's kind of become this virtual character um right. you know and the simone thing with the, yeah, yeah yeah well yeah. <laughs> i meant like in the in like like the playwriting sense of know. You know, um, but um yeah she's sim 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 one or whatever um but um but you know the thing with the portrait of grace like that's yeah if 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 that story is such that like it you know that she was obsessed with her and painted this portrait of her after what would have you know i guess have been close observation from a distance um that's creepy and like that character is allowed to be creepy uh you know because she is uh, you know, one of the few uh, people of color in, in this cast of characters and uh, certainly lower on the socio- socioeconomics uh, r- you know, ladder. Like, that doesn't mean that she needs to be some saint who was just, un, you know, kind of done in by these terrible rich people. Right. She can be complicated, too, but I think the important thing is, you we realize, well, maybe that was really creepy, maybe there was obsessive behavior, all the phone calls, the portrait painting, but what did the other side, particularly in, in what we're imagining now, uh, Jonathan do to exploit that or to stoke it or um, to otherwise, you know, uh, do as much harm, if not more.
0: It reminds me of another property we talked about over on Little Gold Men, which is Rebecca, right? This idea of like becoming obsessed with the other woman, like in a way of like, like, is it a sexual obsession? You know, like Grace has this uh you know imagine interlude where Elena kisses her in the locker room. you know what I mean is it like a sexual obsession? is it insecurity you know what you know what is this like and i you know I can imagine if you're in a relationship with someone and they have a wife. Like, you know, you're interested in who that woman is. Um, To what degree are you interested? How does that manifest? Um, You know, and this is sort of the, you know, John, as Fernando sort of righteously points out, like, is Jonathan tactic to paint Elena as like a, as unhinged in some way? And like what, what, you know, bullshit Fernando considers that to be. Um, But that is sort of the case that Jonathan's making here. And, you know, the, the portrait only helps his case, I would say. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe. I I don't know. Maybe 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 we would all por- paint portraits of Nicole Kidman if we could. Um one scene that I wanted to sort of zero in on really quickly to to speak to some of the uh Susanna Beer tech- directing technique that we've been talking about a little bit on this podcast uh is the scene where um the detectives show Grace the portrait on the phone. And I was just like the actress have mentioned this technique that Susanna Beer has where she like will will focus her camera on like uh, An eyeball or, a, you know, a hand or a cuff or whatever it is, something like really m- micro or macro, I suppose, Uh, to to create an effect to sort of put you in the in the more in the psychological space than in the casual calm observer space. And so the reveal of the portrait, like Detective Mendoza's hand comes out with the phone in it in like slow mo you know and you're just you just see the hand and the phone and then you see Grace's eyes um just her eyes and then you know you see like and it's just so like it's so artistic and almost impressionistic which is so interesting for like uh the The plot that we're seeing here and i mean like uh, you know i would say that big little lies is specifically in season one jean-marc valet like uh, did a lot of this sort of impressionistic um camera work as well to put you in sort of a headspace dream space but um i'm just wondering if any of that stuff is uh, is like sticking out to you richard or if it's just sort of like part of the scenery for you
1: no I think there's i think the show definitely has ta- you know the first episode with its kind of stately classical music and 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 i think the the filmmaking was so uh crisp and and formal um and it's really gotten more and more artsy i guess for lack of a more interesting word um but like and 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 like you're talking about these kind of you know um i guess insert shots and 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 like close-ups and all those things and and this this swirl of the anxiety attack and um i think it's clear that the show is trying to illustrate that the psychological landscape, as we understood it in the first episode, is actually not what's going on. Um, and I think it's doing that, yeah, in interesting, um, technical ways, you know, the, the, the really tight close up on, um, Franklin's face as he's telling the headmaster, like, you haven't seen, I forget the word trouble or, or, <laughs> or something, you know, right. um, in that really sinister way. Like, I, I, I think in, in, in some ways, the, sh- the, the camera is, Really plunging now into people's heads, um, and uh, I think that um, yeah would further support our idea about the unreliable narrators and unreliable protagonists, and yeah, you know, um, so yeah, I think it's gotten really kind of stylishly, stylistically interesting. Um, I- in addition to the, the the murder mystery,
0: I do want to talk about Franklin's. Um, I mean, I suppose we can say cocksucker on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, monologue. he says it like very Canadian, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah,
1: like coke sucker or whatever he says, I- yeah.
0: I definitely wrote down Canadian accent in my notes there but um uh first I want to mention there is one more um uh close up shot that I just want to mention which is right before Grace faints we just get a shot of the ends of uh Nicole's hair of, of that beautiful like red curly wig, like just the ends of her hair blowing in the like New York morning breeze. And it's just it's beautiful. I, I think it's it's this is a really gorgeous show. uh but yeah let's talk about the uh the Coke soaker uh <laughs> however it is that Donald Sutherland Canadianly pronounced it monologue. This reminded me of like I don't know watching uh Brian Cox go off in succession or maybe even uh the late great Dame Diana Rigg go going off on Game of Thrones. You love a like elder statesman uh, dressing down scene. Um, what do you, let's, let's just talk a little bit more about Franklin in, in this episode and, and what we learn about him.
1: Well, we learned what we, I think painfully have to keep relearning over and over again, which is that like so many times people who are that wealthy didn't get there by being nice or moral or, or uh anything but sinister frankly and uh, you know to go from doting father and grandfather who's just more you know like oh come stay with me and my maid will make you food and there 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 seems to and I gave him money and he cries in that scene last week you know um, and I don't think that's all performance exactly but clearly uh, there is a much steelier uh, and uh, you know, almost cruel side you know i don't know that the headmaster was handling it right i don't think we're supposed to think that like that franklin's just coming in there and, and and just dressing down someone who doesn't deserve it exactly but like i i do think that when push comes to shove someone like franklin doesn't give a shit about a kid like miguel at all like oh, that is just coll- i mean that is that, per- that it's it's the it's the succession thing of um no no real people or something yeah or, no real person
0: involved yeah. no
1: real person involved you know yeah. um and uh i think t- you have to have that sort of sociopathic uh outlook on the world to become a titan of whatever i don't do we know where franklin's money's from
0: um i don't know what sounds canadian maple syrup he's a maple syrup baron sure
1: uh, yeah well you have to word? kill all the other maple syrup people in <laughs> in ontario or whatever to you know like i mean it, it, metaphorically or not you know yeah um yeah. so uh yeah i'm i think i think that's a really captivating scene again you know we said this about noah jupe but like you don't you don't put donald sutherland in the show just to kind of hover around the edges and do nothing right. um and this was really the episode where you realize that he's a sinister person that means grace is from a sinister family uh she had these kind of illusions about her parents marriage that were shattered this week um but like maybe she knew more than she let on there and just didn't refuse to admit it to herself or whatever but uh clearly the rot is not only on jonathan's side of things
0: yeah it's it's interesting um one thing I want to say is that I feel like it's kind of plain that they had like, um, maybe a day to shoot in that art gallery. And so they're like, let's get as much out of it as we can. So it's just sort of like the idea that Franklin goes to the museum every day, uh, is one of my favorite aspects of this show forever <laughs> yeah. in an art gallery. <laughs> um, but is that, sorry, uh, please, uh, don't let my non New York, uh, ignorance show through. Is that a, is that a, a gallery you recognize? Uh, a room it looked
1: like the frick to me which is a a, Mm -hmm. a, a, used to be a private mansion by one of the you know gilded age barons that became a museum i i but i i I don't go up to that part of manhattan often so i don't i don't really know
0: it does seem frickish i would agree with that um and uh yeah and and so just like all all these scenes with him i find so interesting he like you know the most apparent way they're trying to like make us Think that he could be the killer is he threatens to kill Jonathan and I kind of believe him in the in the uh jail interaction so there's that but yeah just this idea this this conversation he has with Grace over another chess game where he talks about how he didn't love her mother and how that was uh, a a delusion you know like a facade. And that Grace's whole idea of what a happy marriage or that love looks like was based on a lie. This is obviously undoing. Something is undone for her here. Um, but it, it but it also speaks to Franklin's ability to, to mask um, and to perform, which, you know, is something we shouldn't ignore, probably.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that rich men often get described as great men because we have so little uh, cultural uh right. ability or willingness to understand people beyond economic success you know and uh he's not a great man <laughs> he knows it but he's also not afraid to not be you know he's like he's not afraid to show to people like the headmaster that he isn't you know
0: the other thing um i want to mention is henry in this episode we see him just uh and throughout the series we've just seen him a lot on the like fringes of conversations watching them. We see him watching again in this episode. Um, so I just think that that's worth noting that like, you know, little pictures have big ears. Like Henry is forever looking and watching and snooping and absorbing. Um, and that's just something once again, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the the other Noah Jup shoe to drop, <laughs> because what else is he here? Kind of thing. So um... his
1: violin playing seemed to get better too. <laughs> and did you? I like that violin scene a lot because. You know, it's the grandfather kind of assessing the next the the air, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and then the kid says, Well, a lot of the other kids want to play the drums or the bass or guitar, but I like the violin, it's different. And you're like, Fuck you, you smarmy little like like that's a sort of precocious thing to say. Like it's annoying.
0: Violin is not that different also, by the
1: way. Like every kid I mean it's the recorder, then violin or piano. I mean it's not yeah. you know, if you're going that route as a kid. Um that's not, obviously not 100% true but but like but it felt so smarmy it felt like yeah. he was doing it to suck up to his grandfather and then you're like wait is this kid like also putting on an act you know um because is he just yeah. learned how to do that from his dad through and his grandfather through osmosis and doesn't know he's doing it but like that very like mm, well thank you grandfather i'm very mm. you know i'm so perfect
0: mm-hmm. thing
1: is was kind of chilling
0: I and mean, i mean i i i'm trying to assess his interaction with miguel which did read to me is completely incidental like accidental yes. that he bumped I don't think and he's out. evil yeah he's influenced by yeah and he genuinely seemed to apologize and then like uh his interaction with the headmaster seemed also genuine to me where he was just sort of like uh what did i do <laughs> i apologize i bumped into it i apologized you know sort of thing uh so yeah just some just some questions floating around there um is there anything else we want to talk about in this episode you got your wish jonathan is out of jail so we don't have to deal with that plot line anymore necessarily yeah, yeah
1: that's um, a relief um yeah no i i don't know i i, I like that the show you know we have two episodes left um i really have no sense of where it's headed I really have no sense of how big the like quote the social or economic critique is going to be. It's already plenty there, but like I'm curious how the show will sort of frame itself um, at the end. And I don't know. I remain suspicious of everyone, uh, but I I don't know. I'm still pinning it on Jupe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I got my hand, you jupe. Um, let's go to our interview with uh, Ismael Cruz Cordoba, who, um, as I said, Fernando and Jonathan have this great, I think, just a really like electric, tense uh, scene in this episode. So let's hear what he has to say about that. One of my favorite, you know, you've got some great dialogue scenes, but some of my favorite stuff you do is completely silent, sort of brooding, glowering, processing, emoting, all of that. And I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about your process or any conversations you had with Susanna about those silent moments for your character.
2: You know, when I read the script, you know, the first thing that you, 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 you read is, just, as you said, the dialogue, and it's, it's so clear, you know, David wrote, but um, from the source material, so, it was, I it's clear to me. I have to make the distinction as well because you connect with certain characters and others you don't. And you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them connect through your own personal experience. And I immediately that one definitely did. Um, and then going into the the process with Susanna, you know, she she she's a master. And I think she I could safely say she has an obsession for truth mm-hmm. and honesty. Uh, and, I, and I'm looking for. Um, uh, the nuance and the complexity of, of human emotion. So in that in that uh, we're, we're not only verbal beings, you know so I think the way that she set up the space for us, you know we, we had table reads, we had uh, time to build chemistry and, and in that time she we also she made it very clear that she was the leader <laughs> you know and also that that in the in in most beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So in order that that trust was there, so I think in, in in the way that she directed, she allows for a lot of silence as well. You know, she's not rushing on It's okay, going beat to beat to beat. This is the thing that we have to punch here, punch here, punch there, punch there.
0: Right.
2: You know, uh, we would have rehearsal in the morning as well on top for about an hour. And then the, the, the set it's a, it was a fade in because I don't know if you've ever been on set and they shout I got shout out. Yeah. It was kinda of like that. She set everything up. She, I mean, the, the, an incredible group of artists that I think she's worked with before. Several of them. So it, it would fade into performance, and she would massage that, conduct that as you went, and she would let that roll. So it really allowed you to start having your body affected by it, to live in the silence, to be in the set. To I, I personally enjoy very much nonverbal act. Um. um uh, like physical performance physical this acting you now i if if you see other of my stuff there's a through line in in that I do love i I didn't before because an actor you're like oh my god I don't have a lot of lines you the script like and but through through it all I've learned the presence the unspoken the the acting acting is what happens in between those lines as well so i'm I, I love that that that's coming across. There's so much like this, you saw. There's so much. How do you process all of that no. at the same time? It's unspoken, it's it's nothing to be spoken. Like, it, you cannot have any words,
0: right?
2: Like, while you have to go through those emotions while having these children around, while still having to face life, almost oh, like it was like a, like a convulsing feeling. And it, it truly was like, I was going through that while I was doing it.
0: So for the for that slow sort of warm up uh, approach, she would just would she just have you move through the space, move through the set, sort of you know do some things before you started the actual action. I I'm just trying to I this sounds fascinating to me. I'm just trying to. It was fascinating. I'm more I'm than happy
2: to share, um, because it was amazing, it was beautiful. Um, you know first. I think it's just a com- like I still have to continue to talk about the coming together about the elements because when you said when you set foot on the set, the costume was fantastic already, you know The set design was fantastic. The lighting where the crew was set up, um, already the rehearsal process, you know, so we would go in the morning and just rehearse uh, whoever was and her. That's it. Nobody else. So you're having an experience of the clean set that it doesn't have the million cameras. So that embeds in you. It's a very important thing. I like that. I like personally to go to set and be impacted by the set without all the machinery. Yeah. Because even when you put it later on, you still have the experience and the memory of Yeah. Of it. So she, she will do that in the mornings. Like Everything stops. It's her and her actors. Um, And she keeps... It's the thing. She keeps massaging it until she finds the truth. She's very against... Gratuitous sentimentality, you know, yeah. um, which we could definitely. Uh, I definitely went into at some point uh, very early on. She came right in and she's like, That's not what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> like you know? um, But, but, but yeah, they, I, I, but beyond that, she lets you be, you know, she creates a very precise structure, but lets you live within that structure. So, I, I, I remember sitting on my kitchen, like, for, you know, nobody tells, you have to be here, you have to be there. Everybody was so respectful of the performance. The actors were incredibly respectful of the performance. I mean, I, um, Nicole, working with Nicole was you know, just a dream come true in so many ways. But just as an actor, uh, the, the the generosity um, and, and, and as part of this world that you're responding to. So, yeah, I mean, I wish it could be there. I hope you get a little glimpse of, of of it while I'm describing
0: it. Was um, was your, you know, um, you're not the only actor on the show to talk about Susanna sort of like reining them back a little from their original conception of the character, that they wanted to go bigger and she wanted to keep it sort of reined in. Um, Was your perception of the character significantly different when you read it? versus after hearing what Susanna wanted from you uh, in this performance?
2: I, mean, I think the dev- the devastating um, feeling that, that he was going through, plus then if it runs after four, um, at the same time that, you know, there's holding the sweetest, most innocent child here. Mm-hmm. You know, and this rage. Well, that, that I didn't know I was going to have a real live baby in that scene. <laughs> oh,
0: really? <laughs> like those
2: those elements, those elements, you know, going with them, allowing them to impact you. She would do things, very small things, like you think you're gonna be in a scene where the the door is closed and nobody can hear you. She said, "No, the door's gonna be halfway open." So that completely changes the tone mm-hmm. of everything because you have to go at it at a person. Um, like you don't want people to hear you plus there's a child plus like it truly messed me up in the best of ways because yeah. it was it was about death you know there's this in 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 just like the writing um that was so nuanced we as humans when you start crying what's the first thing that you do you' so like, you hide you know right. you're not trying you're not consistently trying to do those things outwardly you know position yourself so that everybody sees you crying it can be a choice but that's a tactic on its own see me see me you know Mm -hmm. but what we do is like everything goes inside so like that was and and from there if it comes back it comes in a different way so that was like a lot of the process is restraint until you can't anymore you know which poetically it's the show <laughs> you know what you bring in until those things start coming out of the cracks yeah intimacy is terrifying I think for absolutely every human that I've met so you know so I think the one-on-ones are are harder yeah um so you can, you can get lost in a crowd um so and and at and intimacy with these people because I'm also you know this is a beer and Nicole Kidman in a room with you or beer and he grind with you in a room um but that said just going back to you know gushing the actors they're so committed in, uh, to to the, the the work and so generous so they gave me everything you know they gave me everything that I needed to be able to go deep um all the energy, all the commitment, all the the focus, the respect, the space for my ideas, the space to breathe, the space to take my time and the verbal also permission. You know, Nicole at one point I did something in one scene that I I, I got a bit self conscious. Did I did I scare someone? Did I cross a boundary? And she just looks at me and just go, <laughs> do your thing. She was like do your, do what you gotta do. Don't worry about me. And that was that was fantastic. In the courtroom scenes, I, I had to operate a bit differently because mm-hmm. it's just, I, I, I automatically, I engage a lot with extras and crew because I was an extra for a long time and I love my crew and I don't like the, you know, the hierarchy and like you don't look at yeah. certain people. But in that, I end up sometimes wasting a lot of my energy and I, I, you can't do that with this role. You know? Yeah. You know, in that scene that you're mentioning, I have, I had to stay in a very, very protected space. So it was one of the first times in my life that I would just have headphones, one up, you know, in the stand and, and, you know, they would kind of give me a signal. So I, I could, so I would, when I was in the stand, I, I didn't engage much with anyone.
0: Um, can you share uh what you listen to in your headphones when you're trying to stay in your space? Because uh I have to tell you Hugh Grant's uh, answer to that question was priceless to me. So I'm curious what you listen to. Or or is it just a white noise?
2: I was gonna say absolutely not.
0: <laughs> no. You won't share.
2: No. no, I I you know that I actually have it's just a it's just random This there's this random playlist that I have mm-hmm. of songs that that get me so freaking sad. But you would never think that those like like really? So it's not like a regular sad song. They just they have a moment in whether it's it's the voice when it climbs and it you know like i it races your you know that song. Yeah. Those songs it doesn't matter like something they do with their voice or when the cellos come in or when the bass drops, there's something that just like opens you up. So yeah. I do have a song I mean there from Sir du Soleil that, really? that oh, my God, and I don't know what language she's speaking, but there's a point where she's like, she keeps changing keys, and she does something with, like, her voice that always disarms me, absolutely every time. And then there's another one from the singer, Australian, uh, um, uh, Aboriginal singer Christine Anu, that she sang in the opening of the Olympics, Sydney, 2000. Nice. And and there's a recording of that, right? There's a recording of like the studio recording. But the one that gets me is when she sang it at the opening ceremony.
0: The live. Alright. So it's
2: that one even when you hear the crowd and you hear the announcer present her in the languages and then she starts that one <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's over for you. Like so,
2: yeah. So I, I, I would listen to those. They remind me of very important times of my life. Yeah, that one when I moved to New York, actually, and I had nothing, and I was just like, like hanging on a dream. And it gives me this. It's called my island home, you know. So, and I come from Puerto Rico, so it just speaks so beautifully of like a guy going from the mountains into the sea. Ah, we see. I start. Oh no! <laughs> 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 it's beautiful.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned sort of the social disparity um, that's at play in this story. And there's also a racial disparity. We've got this like hyper white family at the center and then these non-white characters sort of um, orbiting them. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think the show has to say about the way in which those worlds interact around this story.
2: Yeah, I mean, my experience with the New York I and mean, in life, but New York mainly is how uh, how harmoniously they, in a certain way, they live. in New York, you know, we're all transit the same streets, take the same subway cars, but how stri- uh, you know, like strikingly, we, and, and how stark it is. The the there's no relation, you know. There's no mixing. There's no you know, the same people get off at the same stop, and you're going to the same party, but one's going to be your cater waiter, and the other one's the biggest benefactor. You know, so um, and and how you know the the displacement of that, and how uh, the, the, the keeps keeps pushing people out to the outer boroughs, and it's like there's no there's 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 being together, but there's no togetherness. Mm. You know close to each other, but there's no actual uh, melding. Um, Rarely. Very rarely does that happen. But what was fascinating to me too, and, um, and also growing just becoming an adult and all these things, is that you do aspire to be in those upper echelons. You know, when you grow up poor, you say, oh my god, if I had the this and the that. And the more you go into those spaces, even as a Bystander, I, I've questioned myself. I think who's the lucky one? I, I think, I think I'm the lucky one. I think I'm that I've gotten to see the rawness of the world throughout. Versus that feels more like a prison, both psychological and materialistic prison.
0: Mm. That,
2: you know they kind of build these these pyramids up on them, their heads that eventually somehow always fall.
0: Well, on that note, I wanted to ask you. Uh, this is a question I've been asking some folks. Uh, what do you make of the title of this series, The Undoing? Like what is undone? You talk about like pyramids toppling and stuff like that. Is it is it that? What what is your view on that?
2: If you ever had any breakups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that thing, that 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 thing that breaks in you afterwards when you start recontextualizing everything, what was what? Yeah. Was that real? Was that not real? What moments were real? Was it love? Were we actually in love? Was I getting love back? You know, like the recontextualizing of your entire being, like how you, how we're actually able to live on narratives, live on um assumptions, live on attachments. And then all of a sudden that, that whole thing comes out and uh, from under you. And uh, that's, I, I think that to me is the undoing. <laughs> it's like, like of, of not it's not only something that happens outside because for example in the show or or i mentioned i have an example of break up all of that that broke over there is what how that topples and reconfigures your entire identity sense of self you know yeah. so i think that's what every character is going on in the show
0: yeah is going through in the show you know i think that's right so, what difference do you think it makes for this show to be coming out now in the world we're living in now versus, you know, it was supposed to come out in the spring. Uh, It feels like we're in an entirely different universe now uh, from where we were when this was supposed to originally drop. So, you know, have you, have you put any thought into how differently the story might land now with folks?
2: Definitely. I think, I think there's, I have a hope and also like an assumption just coming from myself. I, I hope that um, everyone who has a um, beating heart and um, it's mildly functioning mind um, was affected by this pandemic, you know, by what happened and how we have been introduced to time to be introspective and to be with ourselves and to connect with our humanity. So I think that people, at least the people that I'm surrounding myself with, You see, I mean, these, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, gained so much momentum. It's been all all around, but so many elements of it, I feel it's like that a lot of people, a lot of white people were finally at home as well. And got in touch with a certain type of humanity that when they saw, for example, you know, George Floyd, they said. A whole different context when you're closer to your humanity, you Mm -hmm. know. I think that really affected people because they no longer saw just that, 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 that far away person. It's like, no, 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 that human, that, that pain, this that I'm feeling for the first time in my life because I'm sitting with myself all day mm-hmm. where they were finally able to receive it. So, um, and I, I don't think that was a coincidence, you know. Mm-hmm. I personally have gone through an entire transformation and I feel like I've, I've access my voice and many things that I had buried down in the pursuit of success or whatever. Um, so I do feel that this show, you know, comes at the right time to be able, because it's all about humans and the complexity of it. And there's so much humanity to it, but also it's a commentary on the mediatic system and the, the and the legal system, you know? So like coming from how all these events that we've had, it also it makes you question that process. And I think it comes perfectly after the whole thing that we've been going through to look at the cracks within those, those two systems, you know, yeah. if anything, what do you think?
0: I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about everything right. you said, uh, especially, yeah, the, the humanity and the attention that we were able to give. We're usually so distracted, right? And if you're stuck yeah, in your home, you can't distract yourself from the realities of what you're seeing. Thank you so much for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. I love talking to you and I love your work. Thank you. So, thank you. All right. Well, that does it for us this week. I guess I do want to mention one last thing, which is that, you know, we're constantly a lot of the media thing things that we are seeing is. Like through Henry watching on his tablet or whatever, right? Yeah. And in this episode, we get the very specific mention of the white privilege of Jonathan, um, which is something um, uh, you know I've 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 talked to a lot of our interviewees about, but just something that I just think is interesting that like you know Haley is not white, Fernando's not white, the detective's not white. Like, well, blah, blah, blah. And at the center of it, you have this like very lily white family plus lily Rabe. you know what i mean it's like but everyone else around them uh you know for the most part is is not white and i think that that is a really interesting casting choice and a really interesting you know i don't think this is a political show but it is a show that is about um you know halls of power and the way in which those halls of power are often uh, you know codified by by racial privilege uh is it
1: yeah and 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 Franklin saying of this very intelligent, high powered lawyer. She's a car mechanic. She just does what you she fixes things. You know, right. it's such a utilitarian transactional view of a person, you know. Um and that was yeah, pretty telling
0: all right. So until uh we we do our our zoop check-in uh, next week, Richard, where can folks find you?
1: Well I'm gonna be practicing my drums because I guess I'm a basic <laughs> asshole. Sorry, Henry. <laughs> Sheesh. Uh <laughs> while I'm not doing that, I will be tweeting at Rylaws and reviewing things for VF.com. Joanna, where where can we find you uh until next week?
0: Oh, I'll be in my basement uh working on my portrait of Nicole Kidman. It's totally fine. This is fine. Don't worry about oh, it. Oh, I thought fine. it was gonna be of me. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um you can be next. Uh until then you can find me on Twitter at this or VF.com, and we will see you in wandering around central park next week.